Hey, it's time for Dr. Lisa Gives a Shit. And I'm Dr. Lisa. You know, I'm back after a couple of weeks. I took a break. I had some re-records. But you guys are so lucky because I have this really amazing guest today, Anthony Hayden Guest. No pun intended. And um, he is somebody who was you know, at the very beginning of Studio 54, he wrote the most important book, the seminal book on Studio 54 called The Last Party. And we're going to talk to him in a minute about Studio 54. And he's also um, want, is going to talk to us about Plato's Retreat, which I am very excited about. Plato's Retreat opened the same year as Studio 54 except it was, if you guys, I, you know, I don't know, I don't know what you guys know and what you don't know, but you should know all this culture about uh, nightlife in New York because it's such an important part of global culture and who we are today. But anyway, so thank you so much for listening to Dr. Lisa Gives a Shit on Radio Free Brooklyn. Radio Free Brooklyn is the greatest station in the Western Western Hemisphere, because I have listened to all of them, and this is definitely the best station. We have a great community of people. We, we, we are a nonprofit, so please go to RadioFreeBrooklyn.com and uh, give us, you know, give us some money. Okay, I mean, it's that, it's that blunt. I'm that blunt. It, give us some money, okay? So anyway... Um, before we get to Anthony, I just want to make sure that you guys know about Studio 54, okay? So here's the thing. The reason that I personally, Dr. Lisa, am interested in Studio 54 at the moment is because I, uh, okay, so I was a Studio 54 reject. It was a really big deal to try to get into Studio 54. I went there uh, when I moved to New York in 1978. They wouldn't let me in. So, you know, being a whack job art person, I made these T-shirts that said Studio 54 Reject. And I went out there and sold them to the rejects. Okay. Uh, and when I found out, you know, the Brooklyn Museum did a... Is, has a show that's up right now called Studio 54 Night Magic, and it's up until November 8th. It's a brilliant show. It really gives you the feeling of Studio 54. They have a lot of memorabilia and stuff like that. So since I found out that show is opening, I decided that I would reissue my shirts and sell them in front of Studio 54, okay? So if you go there this coming Saturday, Saturday the 12th from 2 to 5, you can come and buy a brand new glittery, they're gorgeous, glittery t-shirt for 20 bucks from me. Uh, so that's why there's this renewed interest in Studio 54. Okay, so you get that. So Studio 54, you know, is a really, it, you know, it was, it's, this is from the History Channel, folks. Uh, the global epicenter of the disco craze and the most famous nightclub in the world. And it opened on uh, April 26, 1977. And Anthony, you were there at the opening, right? Absolutely, yeah. 
Okay, so there you go. Do you realize how lucky you are that we have Anthony here? Um, and here's a quote. So Anthony wrote the most seminal book on Studio 54 called The Last Party. And here's a quote from a review of that book. That book came out in 1997, Anthony? I think, yeah. Yeah. Okay, so here, here's a quote. So you know who, how lucky we are to have Anthony here. British socialite and writer Anthony Hayden Guest has been a champion party goer for more than 30 years. There are few people more qualified more qualified folks to lead a reader as he does in the last party past the velvet ropes and doorman and into the tornado of 1970s disco drug excess and excessive sex that was studio 54 okay and then just to give you guys a broad idea of like who the celebrities were so was the idea was that it was a very um sort of populist place like celebrities with their every celebrity would go there but then you could also be a really interesting person go to the line you know go to the and get in i did not qualify i heard that chic the band chic didn't qualify either but um so people would go there people like me and think god i could get here in here and meet like maybe anthony hayden guest <laughs> or share or here's here's just a little list Woody Allen, John Belushi, David Bowie, Truman Capote, Cher, Salvador Dali, Divine, David Gethin, Martha Graham, Debbie Harry, Mick Jagger, Michael Jackson, Elton John, Jackie Kennedy, Bette Midler, Freddie Mercury, Al Pacino, Richard Pryor, Geraldo Rivera, Lou Reed, Robin Williams, Andy Warhol, Elizabeth Taylor. You get it? You get what I'm saying? It was a fucking happening place, and there's nothing like that anymore. Okay, so we're going to talk about that, but I just want to let you know that we're also going to be talking about Plato's Retreat, because a lot of, Anthony knows a lot about it, and we have heard a lot less about that than Studio 54, so this is a bonus for you guys, all right? Um, Anthony is also, I mean, there's a documentary from 2008 uh, called American Swing, and Anthony is like featured. They featured Talking Head. I don't know what else to say. He he's an expert on this too. So you're welcome. Okay, you're welcome. I got Anthony to do this, and you are welcome. Uh, anyway, it was a swing. Swing Plato's Retreat was a swingers club in Manhattan, New York City, United States, op operating from 1977 until 1985 and catering to heterosexuals and bisexual women. The club offered a heated swimming pool, a sauna stream, whirlpool bass, disco dancing, free bar and buffet, cozy living rooms and lounging areas, a variety of, a lot of, lot of sex. So we're going to hear about that too. And I'm really, really excited. And I just want to let you know that Anthony has a new book out called Fun Times, which is a great book of his drawings and verse. And um, I really encourage you, to, if you don't know about him, which you should, look him up on Wikipedia because he, he's, I mean, Anthony knows what a fan of him I am, but he's a really important um, figure in history of New York City, in art history, and in New, New York culture. So, you know, do your fucking research. It makes me mad when people, you know, don't know this shit that's so important if you're going to be a creative person. Hi, Anthony. 
How are you? Good. Um, thanks so much for doing this. Great pleasure. Yeah. Um, so, you know, there's so much to ask you about, and um, it's just like, I'm just, I just want to hear from you, basically. But why don't we start out with, I want to hear what the opening night at Studio 54 was like, like what, what, did you know, did you feel like something was going on? How did you get the invite? Can you just tell us a little bit about what that opening night was like? Yeah, it was, it was, it was, you, one knew that something was going on. I was there, I was at, I was at New York Magazine, you know, I got to meet Steve Rubell, Rubell and Schrager started the place. Um, but also from the opening night, um, I don't want listeners to get the impression it was just wall-to-wall celebrities. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very, no. This is a very, very early phase of the celebrity culture. And the great thing about studio or any of those clubs was you might see, say, Michael Jackson or Elizabeth Taylor in the lobby, but uh, people look and gawk a bit, but nobody bothered them. Mm-hmm. The mania was partly what brought that phenomenon about. But the real genius of studio was in mixing people. It was the famous door. Uh, Mark Benneke was the guy in the door and Steve Rubell, he wanted a real mix. He did not just want famous people. He did not want just Euro trash. He thought, okay, you know, we need some frat boys. We need some guys <laughs> from Brooklyn. And this was a part of a time when the culture, suddenly everybody had woken up and was, in looking at other people. Remember the new journalism? That's what the new journalism was all about. It was about really exploring what was really going on. So it, wasn't, it was not just four-star faces everywhere. It was just a wonderful mix. But of course, I there was remember Mark. I mean, I remember that guy, Mark. I mean, he's, you know, obviously famous now, but in his own way. Um, but did he, and people would yell his name at the door trying to get in, Mark, Mark. But do you think that he had a real talent for picking out people? Do you think he had a real influence on Studio 54 and curating the people that went in there? Well, clearly he did, yeah, mm, because he wasn't there all the time at all. Mm-hmm. And obviously he had an eye for picking groups of people. Okay, uh, you know, they look interesting. So mm-hmm. if, you, if you had a problem, it wasn't because you didn't make the grade. There was no grade. <laughs> right. There was a lot of luck and just, it was like mixing a salad, is the way Rubel put it. Yeah, so he had like, oh, we got too many redhead chicks tonight, okay. Like that, yeah. Yeah, something like that. But he had a really good instinct, right? Sure. And Definitely. was it his instinct more than even Rubel or Schrader? Um, Ian Schrader was kind of... The, kind of the guy in the back, working on the design, working on concepts and things like that. Most people did not meet Ian Schrager. Steve was there as the front guy, but Mark Benninger was the guy at the door. So um, when you were there that first night, so what was it like? Was it crowded? Did you dance? Did you meet people? Did you go, what was that experience? Was it like, oh my God, I can't believe this is happening or? Well, to some extent, History's rewritten it. <laughs> I bet, yeah. Mm-hmm. I think the Studio Fifth Door is the one overwhelming giant. There was a massive clubs opening at that time. Uh-huh, uh-huh. That was really happening. It wasn't just studio. 
there were there were great downtown clubs like the Mud Club and things like that, and there were more uptown preppy clubs like the Surf Club. Mm-hmm. But the studio was a great mix, and mm-hmm. I would say at the beginning, it was just a huge event. But you wouldn't, you know, not, back then people would have dinner and they'd say, oh, let's go on to studio. It only became totally dominant after a little while. Then when then people, and there was a whole population sprang up, really hundreds of, hundred thousand people must have been, who would wander around New York at night, often with bits of glitter on their faces, going from club to club. So how did it wind up that it, well, you know, got so famous for celebrities or is, I mean, the thing that, and, and I, I have no idea, but the thing that always seems to stand out is that Studio 54 seemed like the kind of place where almost like the Vanity Fair party at the Oscars, like if you went in there, it would be like that. Or if you went in there, I'm sure there were a lot of, Young people, probably like me, thinks, oh, if I go in there, I can meet Mick Jagger and wind up dating him or something. You know what I mean? Like, what, but what was it like? Was it just people dancing? Did you meet people? What about the sex and drugs? Well, there were VIP rooms. Mm-hmm. And people who were kind of noticeable would usually wind up in the VIP rooms. Mm-hmm. Um, or often in all these clubs. So every club, this was a phenomenon in every single club. Um, you know, the music was hugely important, um, but it wasn't people spotting, you know, and I don't. It was the atmosphere, right? Is that what you're yeah, saying? Definitely. And that's intangible, isn't it? Yeah. And was that atmosphere just like, I wonder if it was just like this feeling of acceptance. Is that what, what it was like when you go in there, uh, no matter how, who you are, how weird you are, you're just fine. You can do whatever you want. Anything goes. Is that, is that, is that what the it weird, was? No, the, the weirder, the better, in fact. Mm-hmm. And I not overlook the phenomenon of, of famous studio characters. Oh, really? Like who? Like who? Disco Sally, who was a granny and going dance like mad every night. Oh, she was there like every night. Yeah, I saw pictures of her. There was a guy called Roller Arena, who was apparently a Wall Street broker, who would go around in roller skates and a dress, and things like that. And so there were, there were a bunch of characters who really, ah. I guess their studio fixture was part of their psyche, and they were part of the psyche of studio. Oh, so they had like a mix of these people who were always going to be there and they had a certain amount of character, which is, which, and they probably got to really be themselves. That was kind of their stage, wasn't it? In a way. This was a a time and later you had the phenomenon, which is not associated with the studio, of the club kids and Michael Ailey. Mm -hmm. Time when the cult of creativity was kind of beginning. Mm-hmm. What do you mean by that? Well, you see now whatever you see enormous ads on the street, normally from you know conglomerates talking about creativity as this and that. Mm-hmm. Back then, people became their own art material. Aha! Uh-huh. You know, and either in groups, and they became that became their lives. They became artworks. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
so you, I know you knew Andy Warhol. Like Andy Warhol seems kind of like the kind of person that um, created that environment to, to some extent because he took ordinary people or people who he made people, he appreciated, I think, and made people famous or put a spotlight on them, let's put it that way, uh, people who were artworks in themselves, right? Yeah, and he was really good at taking in energy. And he was very good at spotting. I mean, his, what's underrated about Warhol's is that he had, he understood the, uh, some kind of psychic pulse in the whole culture. Mm -hmm. It was an accident for people he chose. I mean, some of them were, it didn't happen for some of them. But mm. one now is Marilyn Monroe, the most famous movie star in the world, by people, even people my age have seen very few Marilyn Monroe movies. Mm. Right, right. So he had a sensitivity towards the personality of somebody, their charisma, and the way their mind worked, things like that. I he probably, my guess is that he thought, if it interested him profoundly, he probably thought it would interest the world. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, that's kind of what's, what, that's kind of what you're talking about at Studio 54. Like there seems like there's a connection between that idea of people being their own artwork, right? Yeah, the whole culture had kind of broken out and the, the old, old world of elites was melting to a considerable extent. Mm -hmm. Become their own elites. So that was really kind of the dawn. Would you say like that was the dawn of celebrity culture? I know that you have thoughts about how celebrity culture has really changed or? Well, your younger generation won't even know what the hell celebrity culture was. Social media has obliterated celebrity culture. Now people become super famous for 11, forget 15 minutes, for 11 seconds, you know. But back then, if you were, became super famous, you were probably going to be around for a few years at least. Right. And it's like, it's not like, it's not like that anymore. Not in the world of social media, the world of influencers and all of that. So when you went to Studio 54, did you see kind of the same people there? How often did you go? Did you go like once a week or...? More, more, more than that. It was like, did people go there and hang out every night? I could see that. That would be great. Yeah. Um, no, because you see, the one interesting thing about the VIP rooms in these clubs is they tend to be pretty squalid. I mean, the, the VIP room in Xenon, which is another great club, was Howard Stein's office. The VIP room in studio was basically a basement with overhead pipes and things like that. It wasn't, a, it wasn't a glam place. And that was partly what attracted people because the people who'd been through private schooling reminded them of, of those horrible schools they went to. You know, <laughs> a, lot, a lot of physical hardship. Well, it probably felt real. I mean, that was also like in those days, like now it seems like everybody's trying to look wealthy and stuff like that. In those days, it really wasn't about that, was it? No, you're, you're right. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. so do you think the iPhone like the has changed everything like that people taking pictures of each yeah. other? Is that what it is? None of those VIP rooms could possibly exist. Mm -hmm. Photographs all the time of people doing lines of coke or whatever, you know, that would be mm -hmm. ridiculous. 
But how did you get into the VIP room? So you'd get into the club and then how would you get like the, into the VIP room? It sounds like once you got into the club, it was like, hey, you're in the club, but now how do you get into the VIP room? I think that was, you know, you know Stevie was, Steve knew what was going on. Uh, you only had to read the media to know who belonged in the, in the VIP room. You know? No, but did they have like another guy or like how were there, was there a crowd, another crowd? How did you get in there? Did you know how people were chosen? Uh, um, you just kind of knew you could walk in there or not? No, no I, I don't. I doubt that was the case. But I, but I think, I, I, I guess everybody taken. I honestly cannot answer that question. Mm -hmm. uh, I, mm -hmm. As I said, I met Steve before Studio right. Oak. And so um, I had no, you know. So I, you had already known him. How did you yeah. meet him? I knew, I think. You were in before. the same crowd, like? No, no, no. It's just because we knew he was starting a club, you know. I, mm -hmm. I guess, I honestly don't remember. Yeah, it was probably much smaller circle. So, uh, any 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 uh, really extreme things that you can tell us that you saw or did maybe or at Studio Fifty Four? Did you see a lot of drugs? Whatever. Did you yeah. see people having sex? Did you ever see anyone having sex at Studio Fifty Four? No. Well, <laughs> besides I, yourself, maybe. I think I saw a few covered blowjobs and things, but nothing, nothing, mm -hmm. nothing. I, Nothing dramatic, nothing on an open stage. Yeah, right. Um, how about New Year's? Were you there on the New Year? Were you there on the New Year's with all the glitter and stuff? Oh, yeah. I met a lot of those. And, mm -hmm. of course, there were famous parts given by Roy Cohn, the lawyer. Right. Uh, the, the wicked lawyer. And the kind oh. of line was there was, if you're indicted, you're invited. <laughs> I love that. I love that. Did did people from Studio Fifty Four like? Did you guys ever hang out afterwards? Did like? I mean, did like somebody was there? Was there socializing outside that? Did you did you say? Did you go well, to Studio Fifty Four and then we'll have dinner later? We'll go to this other club later. That kind of thing. Did people make a circuit, sort of? Not only that, you see, but but directly out of clubs, like particularly out of Studio, grew the world of after hours clubs. Mm hmm. You know, for instance, uh, Scotty Taylor was a barman at Studio 54, and he and Arthur Weinstein, they started the Jefferson. They started one of the first of the great totally illegal after-hours clubs. Mm -hmm. The after-hours clubs became a whole thing. That's what, that's what hardcore would go after. after mm -hmm. just, so what was that like there? What was, I mean, I, those are places I never got to. I was well, too was, nerdy, well, but... They were like clubs. They were more intimate, and they were they were kind of would hang out and just talk and this and that. And you know, you, when you were there, you were there till four or five in the morning. Mm -hmm. So just less dancing and stuff like that. I don't remember dancing. And mm -hmm. no, I mean an after-hours club is more just like probably uh, drinking, drugs, and socializing. Yeah, yeah. It was was uh, drugs a big part of it? Cocaine or other drugs or? Well, they were they were not mandatory. Um, <laughs> you didn't have to take drugs. No, it was never a huge part of my world. For instance, mm -hmm. was, I was it? A, I was a wino. A wino. I'm a wino. I like wine. Wine is yeah. great. Uh, and um, but was it easy to get drugs? Do you think if you wanted them? 
you could oh, yeah. buy drugs there. Was it fairly open or were about getting drugs there or? People flashing what was of notes and things. I, I'm sure that, no, I, yeah, that would go on a little bit. Yeah, mm -hmm. sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about Plato's Retreat. So Plato's Retreat opened the same year, right? A little bit yeah. later in the year. So how did you wind up going to that place? What was that? What the fuck was that like? <laughs> well, it was, the guy, Larry Levinson, who started it, um, he was actually, in his way, an idealist. He wanted to... Uh, he thought the straight people should, I mean, the gay clubs are already roaring away with very public, so not public in, in the open air, but in, in, in that premises of very public sex. He, he didn't see why, why straights should not have the same freedom. Mm -hmm. And that, mind you, back then, remember, there was no internet. So people were not, all this was already going on in San Francisco, but people in New York didn't really know about that. And right. it began, it had been going on in Rome a generation before, you know, but mm -hmm. but New Yorkers thought they'd invented it in a way, and um, but uh, yeah, Plato's was totally about it, the, 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 about public sex. Absolutely, there were a few private rooms for the shy. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, but in those days, it was really all like word of mouth, right? because there was no other way. So it kind of had its own network, I'm guessing, like because you'd have to hear about it, you'd have to know about it. From, so it was more, uh, just by nature, more organic, more of an organic network than somebody coming to New York and going, I want to have group sex, and then searching on the internet, right? In, in Manhattan, your word of mouth is pretty effective. Mm-hmm. So what was your first impression when you went to Plato's retreat? Like what, 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 what the fuck was that like? <laughs> so also there were lots of different spaces. Um, game rooms. There was a, there was a pool, which I would have gone into to save my life. You know? Oh yeah. Right. Oh, and, and I also want to let our listeners know, hey, guys, this is before AIDS. This is right before AIDS. So it was a different mentality. All right. So just so you know. Um, I went to a sex club once uh, just in Manhattan, just for the experience with a boyfriend uh, in the 90s, late 90s, uh, trapeze. So anyway, I, um, I, ha I have... A, this is what I wonder if it was anything like this. So when you got in there, you were given a bathrobe and you took off your clothes. What what happened? Did everybody just take off their clothes? Or I want to well, hear like the details. I want to hear what happened once you walk in. Yeah, one of the by the head first bylaws. One of them is no single man, mm -hmm. um, and those single women were rather encouraged, as a matter of fact. Um, also, you cannot be fully dressed. It did not say you have to be naked. You mm -hmm. be but you couldn't be fully dressed. So most people at the beginning, they'd be, they'd be down to a towel, and sooner or later the towel would go, and people walked mm -hmm. around totally naked, you know, as naked as, as they were born. Um, it was... Um, I, I went... I did not go as often as... as mm -hmm. you, as, as, 
Sounds exhausting. Sleep. Couldn't go every night. God. <laughs> well, yeah, also, it's, you know, it wasn't that appealing. Uh-huh. You mean you, know, you kind of have to like that sort of thing? You have to really, I a mean. Giant, a giant naked locker room is really not my idea of fun, you know? Mm. Yeah, you know, it's funny because the one I went to, um, it was fun. It was really interesting. And I went with my boyfriend and we had sex, but we didn't have sex with anyone else. We had sex in front of people, you know, in a room with other people having sex. Uh, a guy uh, grabbed my tit and he bat my boyfriend batted it away. That's as far as it went. But the, you know, like I'm, I was fine with that. But like, I think that... I don't know. It seems to me that those places appeal to people that really love having sex in a group. Do you think that's true? No, that was a whole swinger culture. That was it. And the reason I, I went as often as I did was very simple. I'd only moved to New York recently, and a lot of my British friends were coming over, and the place was famous. Right. I'd become, I'd become a convenient kind of tour guy, you know. <laughs> and um, because I... It was not my place of choice, to be honest. Right, right. But was it just like, what did it look like? Were there like rooms of people just all over each other or? Oh, there was, there was, a, there was a pool room where you barely, you could hardly ever use the pool table because that was normally fully occupied. Mm. And, and the pool was, of course, as I say, sort of gulping down some of that water. Was, you know, <laughs> God. The horrors to this day. Uh, but still, but it was liberating and, and, and interesting for it to go a few times, you know. Yeah. Well, it seems like it's just a, um, another factor in an example of how different New York and our society was, right? There was a time of, it was post-Vietnam, post post-Watergate. And suddenly people wanted to have fun, you know. All those dark clouds had rolled away. Mm -hmm. And that's what it was all about, I believe. Mm -hmm. It seems as if uh, that, you know, people... I don't know. It seems like now, if you want to have an experience like that, it's pretty available, right? You know, like if you want to find a place where you can have group sex or something like that, it doesn't seem that much of a novelty anymore, does I'm it? I'm told that even in the era of COVID, uh, swing clubs are extremely active. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Maybe they wear masks. <laughs> um, what do you think has, like, when you look back on the book you wrote, did you imagine, like, what's the difference between now and then? Like, did you imagine that we would ever be where our society is now? Did that seem like, it seems like such a much more exciting time and such a much more inspiring time, like that, that you know, where people were really trying to be individuals and stuff like that. Have you seen a lot of change in that way? I think no, the, the convulsive change. The internet has changed the world more than any invention since the wheel. Mm, really? Uh, the internet and social media, absolutely different world, yeah. And for instance, look at the conspiracy culture. Now, even back then, you know, there, there was 
even back then, uh, three out of ten people would say find something suspicious about the the, the JFK assassination mm. or whatever. Mm. Uh, mm. Even good friends would say, oh, I know there's something about it. Or even at the World Trade Center, we'll say that was an inside job. But even so, this is not new. But mm -hmm. the size and proliferation of the uh, culture of untruth. Mm. Where no one is accountable, right? So who no. else did you meet at Studio Pit? Did you ever, did you know Mick Jagger? Did you see him? He was supposedly there a lot. I never saw Jagger there, I know. Um, probably if I did, I wouldn't have taken it in particularly. <laughs> As I say, the main space um, and those little private, uh, the private space is frankly more interesting. Yeah, because that's where, um, yeah, that's probably where people really hung out, right? People you knew to talk to, or people you didn't know you wanted to talk to. Mm hmm. Well, it was probably really loud. It was probably hard to uh, have a lot of conversations there. Well, loud music. Come on now, try and find a public space without incredibly loud music because they're full of people looking at their screens who don't talk. I know. It's, yeah, you're right. You're right. Everybody's on their screen now. It also is really weird because... Like our culture seems like now everybody wants to be a celebrity, right? That's kind of like the ultimate goal in our culture is to be, you know, famous and then, of course, rich and famous. And uh, when I think about Studio 54 and I just look at these list of famous people, like the learning from those people, like Timothy Leary, Bette Midler, uh, you know, Elton John, those are all people that I find inspiring. And it seemed like it was more of a meritocracy back then, no? Do you know what I mean? Like people who really became, got the um, notice in the culture had a lot more, um, had things that you could really be inspired by. You know what I mean? Yeah, but the people mentioned it was also a bit like the Statue of Liberty or the Empire State Building. If you come to New York, you get better go and check it out. You know, at least two or three times. It didn't mean I—I I never saw Tim Leary there, for instance. Right, it was a phenomenon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, did you go to the opening at you know the so for you guys that don't know? So, I was there uh, in March selling my T-shirts on the last night the first and last night that it was open to the public. I know they had a cup of, you know, Studio 54 Night Magic. I did get to see the show. It's a great show. And I want to encourage all you, all you people get out there and go check it out. It's really, really a great show. And it's up till November, which isn't really that far. And you, we know you need a distraction bad. So I think that, um, so I was just, Anthony, did you get to see the show at the Brooklyn Museum? I'd love to hear what you th what your take on it was. I went, to, I went to the press preview. Mm -hmm. And we went around the show. As I recall, we already knew the show wasn't. I mean, I, mean, I believe we probably after the press preview had been organised, but before it happened, 
Right. We, we knew about COVID and all of that. And so right. I, I, I think, I, I, as, I, as I remember, I knew that the show wasn't going to be opening or was pretty certain it wasn't going to be opening. But I did have the opportunity to see all the work. You did? Yeah, the, I went to the press preview. Yeah, so what, what, did you, what did you think of the show? Did you see anything that you were like, oh, the, oh I remember that, or how was that? I, I, think, they did. Well, I think he did, I think he did a, a very excellent job. And mm-hmm. I saw a lot of stuff I didn't know about, which is more interesting to me than the oh, stuff yeah. I didn't know about, you know, yeah, yeah. So, you know, and I, I saw items that were born, and uh, which really brought up the whole, it's like these great little city museums, like Museum of New York. It's great to see material objects that bring back a whole period. Oh, yeah, definitely. And they had all the guest lists there. Did you see that? Yeah, I saw, I saw a lot of that, yeah. Great. Yes, really amazing stuff. And, you know, it's so interesting because that wouldn't even exist now, right? Be- on paper like that. What, the club or, or a the, guest list? Like I was looking at the guest list, right? For the club, they had a bunch of different guest lists. Do you remember that? Seeing oh, yeah. that at the museum? Absolutely. So it was really interesting because it helps you imagine like who was there. And it seems so tangible and real when it's on a piece of paper. And they had like names crossed out and names written in and stuff like that. So, but I'm saying like times have changed so much that you wouldn't even have a piece of paper. Like you wouldn't have the, uh, what do they call that? Detritus now. Unless you print it out. Well, but everybody has their like little pads and all. I mean, this stuff, you know. Very true, very true. Yeah, yeah. So um, I think that's another really interesting part about the history of Studio 54 is that it's the way it's preserved is so ta- tangible, you know? Yeah. Did you see any pictures of yourself in there? I think there are some or, or anything like that. Or what did you see that you hadn't, that you didn't know? What did you learn? It just brought me back. It brought back memories. It created other memories. Um, it was it was it was a very well organized and put together show, no question. Mm-hmm. You might, you know, for instance, how many handwritten letters do you write these days? None. Exactly. Um, a friend of mine speculates there's going to be a sunspot that's going to wipe out the world's digital memory, which means we'll have we're missing thirty years of history. Mm-hmm. Did you did you see people at the opening or oh, well you were at the press preview but has it brought have you seen anyone from did you yeah, get segued. that segued I think into the opening I, I think I was at, I think I was there all evening I, yeah I saw a lot of people a lot of people I knew absolutely yeah mm-hmm. so was there a reunion feeling to it at all um, well it, it was it was a celebration yeah yeah that's cool. Mm-hmm. So when you went to Studio 54, would you go by yourself and meet people there, or who did you go with? Often, I go by myself, yeah. Mm-hmm. And did you spend time with the same people there, or, I mean, or just every, you know, it was just whoever was there, or? No, the excitement. If you do want to do that, you can go to a bar, you know. No, it's nice to drift around and, you know, see people, see people you don't know, look interesting, mm-hmm. you know. It, 
find something new. Mm-hmm. And New York was very different, right? Yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. Were you at Studio 54 the night it closed? And um, for, for you guys that haven't done your research yet, you people listening, if you are listening, thanks for listening, by the way. Uh, you know, if you, in case you don't know, it, the Studio 54 was, you know, whatever, created by Steve Rubell and Ian Schrager, both Syracuse graduates. They met in Syracuse. That's where I went to college. And uh, they were, they got in, they, tax fraud, boys, tax fraud. Those guys got into like major tax fraud and uh, the, that's how the studio wound up getting uh, closed down. And uh, Anthony, you were just saying that the same thing happened with Plato's Retreat, tax fraud, but right? Larry Levinson, they made, first, Steve first, you thought Larry Levinson would have been smarter. Steve kind of both said to a reporter um, about how little taxes they paid. Of course, Mr. IRS comes calling, you know. And um, so they both go to Slammer for a bit. Did did were you there like the last night of Studio Fifty Four? Do you remember the demise? I, I don't believe I was. No. Mm-hmm. Did you know well, what was going why? on? Why? Because now I can think of it. I mean, after you know, they sold it to Mark Fleischmann. It went through many changes, mm-hmm. and it then it, it lost a lot of its oomph as a club. You know, it declined. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, clubs tend to do that very often, but we're, we're, yeah. we're, even without those kind of compulsive changes. So it was yeah. no longer what it had been. So uh, it, it died before its death. In many uh, ways. Uh. So you weren't even like, you probably didn't even care that much about going at that time. So tell Correct. me about the other clubs. Like there was a whole nightlife thing. Tell me about the other clubs that you went to around that time. Well, there's a club called Xenon, which was actually rather more popular with Euro trash, which is <laughs> that which was is the thing. People like me, really, and um, <laughs> and there was, there was New York, New York. There, there was a whole bunch of them. Peppermint and, Lounge. Yeah, the Peppermint Lounge, where where, the, where I think the Peppermint Lounge was a bit previous. Or, I could be wrong, mm, but how I about how about One Fifth Avenue? When I first moved to New York, I went there a bunch of times, and I saw Warhol there a lot. Did you go there? Mickey Ruskin ran it. Did you ever yeah, go there? I did, yeah. I'm trying to remember. I get, I get confused. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. But oh, you, was, that, was that a club or a restaurant? It was really a restaurant. I think Julian Schnapp was working in the kitchen or something. Oh, that's very likely. Um, right. I think that Miss Mickey Ruskin took... Uh, art instead of you know payment for food and stuff like that but there were so many right there was there was a lot there were there were a lot of clubs there were at least i mean yeah there were lots and they, they were also quite different mm-hmm. uh, and a lot of them were great mm-hmm. I had one of my favorite was the world Arthur Weinstein oh you know? yeah that was great yeah otherwise that was the end of the world oh and, i was uh, going to yeah, that was, I was a terrific club. I saw Bowie uh, perform there live. As, wow, as a, really? There's a band called Tin Man. Oh, wow. Yeah. Was that... Uh, many of the clubs had better music programs at the studio. Mm-hmm. And live music? 
and a lot of them had more art because after they, they, these go, after Ian and Steve emerged into back into the light of day, they started Palladium. Ah, tremendous club, and by then, the club lands had merged with the art world to some extent. And then mm -hmm. Palladium, I think, called the Mike Todrum. Right. By people like like Jean Michel Basquiat, for instance. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you and knew him too, right? Also, don't forget Area. Mm-hmm. Uh, Eric Good's tremendous club, which was very art-oriented, which would do to Andy Warhol did a famous thing there, an imaginary sculpture, where he stood on a on a kind of dais for a little while, then got off it. And that wow. remained an imaginary sculpture until the end of Area. And the land artist Michael Heiser put a boulder onto the dance floor. So there were a lot of different kind of clubs. They were not imitators of studio whatsoever. I was going to ask you about Max, Max's Kansas City. Well, that's a different. Also, that, that was, was different. a different era. That was the era before all this. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. That was a long lasting, but it it had more or less died away by the time I came in New York. That was a great artist hangout at that club. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I would regularly have fist fights and the play class window would dissolve. You know. Wow, so that had a, its own out of control atmosphere. Oh, that was a wonderful place, yeah, yeah, yeah. So there aren't, are there any places like that anymore, or? I think we have a, it seems to me, we have, I'm told we have a virus around. Oh, yeah. You know what I wonder about? I think that, I think that... Um... You're not going to tell me it's a hoax. <laughs> no. <laughs> No, my husband had it. Are you kidding? It's no hoax. <laughs> I had to take care of him for like a month. He's fine. He's fine. Uh, in March, you know, before uh, we really knew, he got it before we started being careful. Thank God, New York. I'm really proud of New York. We've done really well below 1%. But I have this feeling that during this time, there's probably a lot of underground parties, don't you think? Well, we know they are, and we just hope they're taking reasonable. Yeah, care. yeah. I think there's always, I think there's always that underground thing. But I think that, you know, you just, I mean, there's all. What is an underground party? Is it like a group of twenty people that know each other that are hanging out together? You well, know, they have different varieties. There's the outlaw parties, which often somewhere you're not supposed to be having a party and someone will call you, you know, and say, oh, by the way, come. Oh, come right. Yeah, we're having... We're having a little party in the main elevator of such and such a hotel. <laughs> so uh, what is one of... We're going to have to... We're, we're getting towards the end here and I want to ask you about what you're... You know, about what you've been working on lately in your book and stuff like that. But I... So are there any, like, particular... Like, is there any particular events from that time that stick out to you that you experienced that influenced you or that you know, just stuck in your mind? Oh, many, but, but they can't, I can't suddenly say, hey, yeah, listen, I can't suddenly give you a, a list of 10. Okay, well, you know what? Um, I think people should read read the book, The Last well, Party. By the way, MCM <laughs> in the process of turning it into a series. Hmm? You know, MGM, Metro Golden MGM, Mayor. MGM. It's turning it into a TV series, I believe. Oh wow! Is it gonna? So is it gonna be? Uh, you know, actors and stuff. It's not. Sure. Yeah, yeah. 
Oh, that's so interesting. Um, that seems like a great time to be doing that. Are you so? Are you going to be? Con you're consulting on it, or? Yeah, if it, you know, these things. This is not a great time for these things to come together. <laughs> no, no, not at all. So, what have you been working on? I I read a story about um, an Emmy. Yeah. Do you want to tell us that story? Well, thanks to Public Storage, great storage company, who did not tell me they were about to sell my things, sold everything, including my Emmy turned up in a junk shop in in, in uh, Williamsburg. That's <laughs> hilarious. So you, I mean, there there is a story that if you guys do your research, you'll find about uh, Anthony's belongings in storage and what happened to them. But you won an Emmy for, what was it for again? They were writing and narrating a program about Europe, about Koi. They did a whole, there was a PBS series about um, new immigrants. Mm -hmm. This was a, seg a segment about affluent immigrants, whom mm -hmm. I previously referred to as Eurotrash rather unkindly. And that was a fun thing to do. And that was that. That was it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so what happened? How did you, so you won an Emmy for it, which is so cool. Yeah. And then, and then what happened? Do you, what happened to it? Like, how, what, what, what's the story? Tell us a story. The things I lost, because they were all in my, I'd gone to back to London for about 18 months and I'd put everything in storage. And that's when, that's what I lost. It was one of the many, many things I lost, including a lot of nice paintings. Oh, and then somebody called you because they found it? Somebody was, a friend of mine was going around this junk store. It's actually called Junk in Williamsburg. Yes. I went, it's wearing, I've got it, it's next to me right now. Yeah, I'd love it, to see it. Can you show it to us? The store, it's wearing a black wig and some costume jewelry. Oh, really? So it would have been fitted rather well into Studio 54, as a matter of fact. <laughs> so somebody called you and told you it was in the store and you went there and got it, right? Yeah, yeah. How much was it? couple of hundred dollars, you know. You had to buy back your own Emmy? Sure. I mean, <laughs> That's crazy. I, so what did the store owner say? Was he I, just, I did you tell him? I probably could have got one, the guy who alerted me to inform him. Um, I probably could have got one free from the people who wore the Emmy. Oh, but yeah, I, right. But I rather fancied getting one that had been battered and been <laughs> <laughs> yeah, reuniting with the original. So, yeah. so um, was that like how? Oh, so it was a couple hundred dollars. So was that weird? That must have been like, oh my god! Like, how did it get here? No, I assume. I mean, you know, um, they, you know, these storage companies—they sell off this stuff. You know, mm -hmm. I so, don't think you bought it. We're doing anything wrong? Did it look like it'd been through a lot? Oh, yes, it's battered. Oh, really? Do you like that, though? I do, yeah. It had its own life. Oh, but owner's been a bit battered, too. <laughs> so, um, Anthony, tell us what you've been doing now. I want to talk a little bit about your new book and your drawings and whatever else you've been writing a lot. I know that. Um, let's put in a plug for White Hot Magazine, which... Um, is a great online magazine uh, run by Noah Becker, and you write for them regularly. Uh, and you've been doing a lot of, I mean, you're, 
you're a little bit of a workaholic, I think. What do you think? Are you a little, a little bit? Totally, totally. I, love, <laughs> I knew it. <laughs> I love doing big cartoon projects also. Mm -hmm. Yes. So, so, um, have Tell you get fun times? Oh, That's fun times. Yes. Your book, your new book, fun times at orangeart.org. And tell us a little bit about the book. It's well, a lot it's, of drawings, <laughs> cartoons, as you say. Cartoons, yeah, and some rhymes also. And it's, um, there's some themes inside it. Mm -hmm. A whole section called Death Sentences, which is famous or ridiculous last words, you know. I want people to look at the book. I mean, it is a really great book. And also, I think, like, one of the things that's so great about, I'll say, this period of your life is how rich it is with your cartoon production and your verses and performing and stuff like that. Like you've really embraced all that. Like it, it's right. Isn't that kind of more of your recent work? I think I've been kind of a late developer. <laughs> I think, I think that you're always developing. That's the beauty of being a workaholic. So you, you've really connected to those drawings though. I think it feels like it's such a great common, a great way for you to express yourself because it uses your drawing skills, which are formidable. I really ha think they have a lot of personality and they communicate well, but then you also get to make a point in a kind of in a really great way, like where the person has to think about it. And then they also get to use your sense of humor, which is, which is really kind of what makes it really special and puts it together. Does that make, is that, is that a good description, Anthony? What do you think? description. It's good, right? Um, <laughs> and what about, what about the verses? You know, that's kind of a new thing. Where does that come from? I've always done them, and, and um, I consider myself a rhymer. No, I, 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 I'm not a, no, I don't call myself a but was a Baron was a rhymer, too. So was, mm -hmm. I, I, I love people like Lawrence Hart, you know, Rogers and Hart is one of my favorite writers. Oh, know. that's interesting. Yes. When love congeals, it soon reveals a double crossing of a pair of heels, a distinct aroma of performing seals. I wish I was in love again. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> what I like. What else? And you have, um, you said you had an article that's going to be about uh, Plato's Retreat coming out and Avenue. What else? What else? You're writing all the time. Oh, yeah. Um, I'm doing another book. Mm -hmm. Oh, on what? Another book about the art world. Just oh, really? World. So interesting. What, what's the take on it? What point of view? That to public. <laughs> oh, no, you're not going to? The world is full of that. ideas. Oh, well, I look forward to that. I'll tell you that much. What about, um, oh, Michael, Michael Anderson. We should mention that. So a great artist that I know you were close to that I was pretty good friends with uh, passed away uh, suddenly in July and you wrote some really you wrote a really nice tribute to him and you had some great photographs in white hot magazine and i just want to let you know that i personally really appreciated that because uh michael anderson was a very important artist and a very original like he's somebody andy warhol probably would have appreciated right <laughs> 
I mean, he was a very smart guy with a very big heart. Very big heart. And also, I went to his memorial, and the thing that really struck me when people talked about his personality was that he was the real deal in the sense that he was a collage artist, guys. And what he would do, he continually went across the world, really, New York and the world at night, all times of day and night, and stole or, you know, swiped posters from all over. And kind of New York and the world was his palette. And he knew, like, if he wanted a certain style of poster, he knew where to go in New York and get it. And that was something that I really hadn't heard before. Uh, and I was really grateful to really get that sense of him from the memorial. Um, you must have known that about him. Did you, did, you, you, did you go to his studio? Had you been to his studio? No, a bunch he, of... lived, he lived literally two blocks from me. Oh, he so... Lived, he lived 10 minutes away, and I was there quite often. And um, he also, he was, he was an unusual guy. He also collected stickers. He probably said he had probably the biggest collection of stickers in the world. Mm. And um, collected posters. And he, he bio posters too. Oh. I'm, he's not the only. I know three or four other artists who've worked mostly with posters, but I think he was the best. There's, there's a good French one also. Mm -hmm. um, but his, I think his work is very strong and very striking, and hasn't yet really been given the credit that it's due. Yeah, I mean, in the you know, the art people that I know, he's incredibly well-respected and stuff like that. Um, as far as like, you know, the global art market, we don't know what's going to happen to that in the art fair world. I don't know, but um, I would say that he's definitely well-respected among, you know, certainly his peers and people that know about his artwork. Like um, a friend of mine in LA was just so, you know, enamored with him. And he was like, you know him? Wow. So anybody that does collage art, I think, is very well aware of him, but who knows? Yeah. So Anthony, um, we're going to have to go. There's the alarm going off. So I just want to say, you know, how much I enjoy spending time with you. And thank you so much. And um, I'm glad, I'm glad we're here. I'm glad we're healthy. That's what counts. And I want to uh, remind people, I want to say thanks again for listening to Radio Free Brooklyn. And once again, like we have such great programming this afternoon. Thursdays are great. You should really stick around and listen to Elon Danziger and all the great stuff we have coming up this afternoon. And please come by and say hi at the Brooklyn Museum. I'll be out in front. It's a guerrilla project, not sanctioned by the museum. And I'll be there from 2 to 5 on Saturday, September 12th. So thank you so much. And uh, have a great afternoon. Okay. Bye, guys.